Halito, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk, a podcast by Natives for all. Here, we're keeping our Native ancestors' stories and history alive, while also sharing with you our Native cultures, traditions, and more. I'm Rachel Youngman, a Choctaw originally from Anadarko, Oklahoma. I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode, where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. But first, a word from our sponsor. Potential is everywhere in the Choctaw people. It's in our schools and students. It's in our small businesses and entrepreneurs. Potential is in our lifestyle and health. It's in our culture and heritage. Passion and commitment is in our blood. Ingenuity and economy are a tradition. And the Chutla Foundation was founded for this potential. To cultivate minds and hearts, to stimulate ideas and passions, to extend lives and improve health through education, and to preserve and promote the power of our past. The Chatha Foundation, meeting the potential of the Choctaw people. Did you grow up going to powwows? Did you join others in the arena, dancing in a tribute to your ancestors in regalia of every bright color? Or have you just attended a powwow as someone who doesn't participate, but maybe you just appreciate the experience? What did you think? The Choctaw Powwow is coming up December 4th and 5th, 2021 in Durant, Oklahoma. So there's no better time than today to learn more about powwows and specifically contest powwows. Before I introduce my guest, I'd like to encourage anyone, Choctaw or not, Native American or not, to consider checking out the Choctaw Powwow, which will feature the dancer contest, drum contest, and powwow stickball exhibition games it'll be something wonderful to experience. So go check it out at choctawnation.com slash powwow for more information. But before you even consider attending, why don't you take a listen to today's episode so that you really get a feel for the powwows and what they mean to our native people. What an interesting show we have for today, y'all. Here's an excerpt from the book we'll be talking about, The Native American Contest Powwow, cultural tethering theory. All members of the tribal group are initially full participants and devoted believers of the tribe's spiritual practices and beliefs. All tribal members employ the tradition's spiritual mandates in their daily lives. Each of the spiritual traditions, cultural threads holds great importance because of the importance of spiritual beliefs and practices in cultural life. As such, the cultural tether of traditional spirituality is thick and resistant to change from within the tribe and from without. Before I introduce you to my two guests today, Dr. Stephen Isanina and Dr. Sebahatin Zayanik, here's a bit about them. 
Dr. Stephen Isenia received his bachelor's and master's degrees in physical education and also holds a doctorate in education from the University of Northern Colorado, where he was awarded the Graduate Dean's Award for Excellence. He joined the faculty of the University of Texas Permian Basin in the fall of 1988 and served as a professor of kinesiology. He also started the athletic program there and served as athletic director from 1993 to June of 2017. Within this time, the program had grown to include 16 NCAA Division II intercollegiate sports, and he accumulated 325 wins as a collegiate coach, retiring in June of 2021. Dr. Isenia researched and was a public speaker in the areas of physical education, athletic competition, coaching success, modern sport, psychosocial development settings, and Native American culture and identity. And he was involved in a number of grants dealing with research in these areas. In his recent research, he utilized qualitative methodology, and most of his work has been in the realm of sociology and Native American studies, as opposed to sport and sport pedagogy. Most recently, he has published three peer-reviewed articles focusing upon the Native American contest powwow. Before earning his doctorate, he was a high school teacher coach on the Navajo Indian Reservation in Northwest New Mexico. Dr. Isenia is also a professional photographer and enjoys photographing wildlife, sports, and landscapes. Dr. Sebahatin Zayanak is Associate Professor in Sociology at the University of Texas Permian Basin and holds a PhD in Sociology from the University of North Texas. He is the recipient of the President's Research Award in 2020, La Mancha Society Golden Windmill Research Award in 2018, and the Outstanding Excellence in Teaching with the National Society of Leadership and Success in 2018, Outstanding Instructor Recognition in Teaching with Thank a Teacher Program for Commitment to UNT Student Success in 2012 and 2013. Among multiple books, articles, and publications he contributed to are the books Turkish Immigrants in the Mainstream of American Life, Theories of International Migration, 2018, Analyzing Delinquency Among Kurdish at Adolescents, A Test of Hershey's Social Bonding Theory, 2015, and more. He is a member of the advisory board of the Odessa Links for Odessa Homeless Coalition since 2016. He was the president of Peace Academy of West Texas between 2018 and 19, and his fields of research are in the subjects of delinquency, deviance, social organization, social movement, sociology of education, environmental studies, and race and ethnicity. Gentlemen, welcome to Native Chalk Talk. Thank you very much, Rachel. Thank you, Rachel. So glad you're both here. I hope you don't mind if I call you Steve and Seba. Is that cool? Okay. (laughs) Now you're both visiting with me today from the great state of Texas, correct? Hook'em horns, yeah. Woo, (laughs) I'm with you. It's my second favorite state. I'm sure a lot of the people listening are OU or Oklahoma State fans. Right. Don't... Probably might not have been all that important. <laughs> they, just, they just turned off the podcast. They're done. No, no, don't do it. <laughs> we probably should have saved the hook'em horns for later. <laughs> yeah, probably at the end. <laughs> so today we're talking powwows, but specifically contest powwows, as detailed in your newest book, The Native American Contest Powwow Cultural Tethering Theory, as mentioned earlier. I can't think of a better pair of experts to write about this topic, the research you guys have done and the time you spent presenting it in a way that's really interesting for anyone picking up the book is certainly impressive. But before we start, 
I noticed people can buy the book on Kindle, but where else should they look for it? I know you can find the book on Google Books, uh, Roman and Littlefield Publishers website, barnesandnoble.com, books.com, walmart.com, and there's a whole bunch of other places uh, domestically that have it as well. They they do have versions, e-versions, and then printed versions, but I just got my first copy about two weeks ago, so they're still in production in terms of printing the hardcover copies. Yeah. So for our listeners, it's really exciting for us to be here on the ground floor when the book has just recently been published. And, and as you mentioned, Steve, you just got your first um, real copy. So super exciting. Congratulations to you both. Thank you. And I'll be sure to post the info on my native Chalk Talk Facebook page. So what was your inspiration for writing this book? My background included living on the Navajo reservation and teaching there for seven years. I grew up in Southern California and had a lot of friends from different backgrounds, different ethnicities uh, and races. And when I was at at Crown Point, there was certainly culture shock that I experienced. There were things that I wasn't used to, like not making eye contact. Uh, I was used to getting along with people, people liking me. I really didn't have that feeling. So after that first year, I really questioned whether I wanted to go back because I was so uncomfortable. And mm-hmm. one of the things that was important, I think, in being there as long as I was, was to make a commitment to better understand the culture, to make accommodations. And that was really, really important. So I knew I was in a, a different area. 98% of the kids were Navajo that went to the school. Uh, a lot of them, English was a second language. So there was a whole lot for me to learn. Well, one of the things that they had at Crown Point annually was a local powwow. So I attended a few of those. And I, I can say that I wasn't overly impressed because, again, if you're going to compare that to a contest powwow, uh, people were not wearing regalia. Uh, it was a small event. Most of the event was people socializing, although there was some dancing and obviously a, a drum. And I used to drive into Albuquerque fairly regularly for either athletic events or shopping or whatever. And as I drove east, uh, entering Albuquerque, there was a billboard on the south side of the road that says, Gathering of Nations Powwow, World's Biggest Powwow. And I said, wow, I'd like to go to that sometime. So this is back in the late 70s, early 80s. Mm-hmm. But I never went. I was always coaching something, a track and field typically in, in April. So I never went and I was always disappointed in. So I moved down to Texas, was working here as a professor. And I, I just told my wife, uh, we need to go to this powwow. I, I'd really like to go. So we went and basically I was stunned as I was going in. I felt like I was going to a New Mexico logo basketball game. It was held in the pit where they played but the parking was the same. You still had tickets to be scanned. You had assigned seats the video board was being used, loud PA system, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> right. So I felt like I was going to a basketball game. And then I was overwhelmed by the number of dancers. There were over 3,000 there that particular year. Uh, there was competition. So again, none of these things were like what I had experienced at the local powwow level at all. Large numbers of drum groups, competitors wore numbers. Before events, people were high-fiving and giving fist bumps just like at a basketball game <laughs> at, at the right. conclusion of, of 
around. Uh, they gave each other high fives just like that. I remember distinctly the announcer talking about maintaining sportsmanship. And so I was watching all this stuff thinking this is a lot like an athletic event. And I remember hearing the announcer say that and I go, this is just the weirdest thing ever. And then the other thing that, that really struck me was, although it seemed like it was an athletic event, there was so much culture that was being put out there right in front of me, you know, from the MC describing what was going on to the regalia, to the foods, to language, to the stories and history. Mm-hmm. And I just had so many questions that uh, once I got back home, I started doing more research on powwows and ultimately contest powwows. And th- that's where my, my beginning <laughs> was. And then Seva became involved. So he's going to talk now about that. Great. That's by the way, that's really interesting to hear the perspective of someone that didn't grow up around it. And, and you, it sounds like you saw more of a traditional type powwow in the first round and the second go round had that more, maybe a wow factor of what we're probably expecting more of, and both very valid and wonderful powwows, but two very different ways of doing the dances and all that. So thanks for sharing that. It's kind of interesting to hear, you know, if you talk to a native who's been going to powwows their entire life, they'd be surprised that, oh, I didn't realize that not everybody would understand this or be in such awe of it when walking in because maybe they're just so used to doing it every day. So yeah, so Seba, let's let's hear your side of this too. My inspiration was definitely the Steve Isolina's life mm-hmm. uh, because when he came to my office and he gave exactly explained the topic and uh, what he's interested in. And uh, that, was a, that was the moment I, I was really interested, in, highly interested in this project. Yeah. And because I published a book in 2018 uh, about the Turkish immigrations in the mainstream of America. And once I published that, I was just focusing on the immigrants and all the theories, like the 12 theories uh, from the first generation theory, Anglo-Saxon theory to Albany theory and everything else. But I never focused on the, anything uh, it's been the Native Americans and then and uh, I didn't have much knowledge. And once he mm-hmm. explained his uh, background information, everything, that was really uh, shocked me. I would like to know more because his life, when he speaks about his life and all the theories I knew, it was kind of speaking of the theories that that was a unique thing that's never been touched upon before. That was my starting point. And I was teaching also culture and society class. And uh, that was a kind of, I was always thinking that, but I didn't know where to start uh, to doing this project. And because for the, that book was, I was always seeing myself as a George Zimmel's perspective as a stranger when he wrote his book, there's a little essay about the stranger. Uh, strangers, he's, he's making the definition between stranger and the wanderer. Wanderer is, comes today and leaves tomorrow. And then strangers comes today, but stays tomorrow. Mm. And but he was, he was a, a Jewish uh, first generation uh, person and he was trying to integrate himself to the German society and went to the German high school. And uh, I've, Probably I felt myself in the Burstein, Max Weber's Burstein perspective, putting the sympathy in the, in the culture. Basically, I, I feel myself like a stranger because I came 20 years ago to this country and stay. And mm-hmm. also, but still not trying to integrate. But uh, when I was walking to the pond in, in Odessa, one person saw me last beginning. The first question after we say hi, where are you from? Like, she was mm-hmm. asking, like, oh, where are you original from? Eh? And my children were born here. One right. from Houston and Dallas. And the, but the question was still, the, the point was, you, they are still seeing you as a stranger. And the, the perspective from the stranger for the inspiring the book 
still was the because Steve's wife and the parents and the children and the point I feel like I have to in involve in this project as a bringing the a stranger point to put more objectivity. Oh yes, yes. Because once one of, one of the concerns we, we will be talking to the, our uh, reviewers and judges, and they were saying that well, you need to be Native American to write this project. To me, it's I think our perspective is very unique because. I am not Native American. I am from Turkey. I was grown and raised in Istanbul. Istanbul is uh, kind of bigger than New York, very metropolitan city. Mm -hmm. And uh, in my neighborhood, I was living with 1 million people. And uh, this kind of culture, I came up and then I have no idea. I know that from some Western Western movies, this is how we learn about Native Americans and the culture. Mm-hmm. Other than that, I did not know anything else. That, that is why I was very inspired by this Steve, uh, Steve's life and then and his children and then, and then Pawa itself. As long as I learn more and I will, I, we delve into more. That's why we published a book and we have two more book projects are coming about the same topic uh, from the different aspects. That is fantastic. I love that stranger perspective. And that's why it's important that we're having this conversation today because part of Native Chalk Talk's goal is to connect natives together and let them share with the rest of the world what their world looks like and their culture, traditions, all of those things. And so now I'm kind of turning um, the other way around to go, what is the stranger's perspective on these things? I should rather say that's what you guys are doing with this research that you did and to kind of come in from that perspective of just being able to have a clear mind and go, okay, this is interesting. And then delving deeper into the research and the interviews with the natives that you spoke to. Very good. I love this. And I think it's a great way for all of us to learn together. Exactly. It's been really wonderful to be able to do the research for this book, to talk to Native American people, Mm -hmm. individuals who organize the powwows contest powwows to get their perspectives on it and it's something that has not been done to a very high degree in terms of the academic world so it is a void in the academic literature I I think a void in Native American literature Mm -hmm. that I thought would be something very very important to fill lots to unravel here and before we dive into the actual book As mentioned earlier, many of us grew up around powwows. I say many, but I guess statistically it's very few of us, but I sometimes forget that not everyone experienced that world. And so for those who honestly may not know, what is a powwow? I was traveling up in Washington. I wanted to go visit the national parks up there, Uh, partly because I spend a lot of time in the desert. I thought that the the greenery and rain might be kind of nice. But while we're up in the, my wife and I were up in the Pacific Northwest, we went into a, a little market. And I asked a young, a young man who, who was Native American uh, about his tribal group's powwows. I said, hey, what, what can you tell me about your powwows? And he looked at me kind of like I was talking a strange language. And he said, what do you mean a powwow? <laughs> so I described <laughs> yeah. what a powwow was, you know, from my perspective. And he said, oh, yeah, you mean a, a doing. And I'd never heard of a doing. So the first thing I want to say, if we talk about powwow, you might be in another part of the country or you might be in one part of Canada or another and use the word powwow or doing or going or a host of other yeah, terms that okay. you don't know what you're talking about. Right. So that's a very simple thing, but something that I, I think a lot of us aren't really aware of. I, people who live in areas and participate in particular 
cultures have different ways of looking at things, different terms, even if the language might be the same. So that's something I think is really, really important to note. Yeah, good point. Uh, but what we'd say is uh, generally powwows are cultural gatherings and celebrations characterized by song and dance. So that'd be a real simple definition. And some of the terms, again, that you might hear in other places would be gatherings, doings, stomps, and socials. Uh, Got it. What Got happens it. at each of those may differ depending on where you're at. Mm-hmm. Because each of the social groups or tribal groups, if you prefer to use that term, has their own view of what things should be included and what should go on during those events. So throughout North America, you not only will you have different names uh, to refer to these gatherings, uh, but what might go on would differ as well. Typically, they can be very large or small. Smaller powwows tend to be family-focused. Things like naming ceremonies might be a part of them. But generally, powwows, particularly what we would refer to as a local powwow, is community-oriented. So the values and traditions of a particular group of people or peoples in a particular geographic area would be celebrated in particular. Mm -hmm. And all of them would preserve and transmit cultural practices and community values. So there are events that people go to, they learn what it's like to be a part of that group, to celebrate what it's, it is to be a part of that particular group. And then the children learn those things and pass them on in an ideal situation to, to their children as well. Many of uh, the gatherings in a traditional type setting, local type powwows, may have a strong spiritual component to them. On the other hand, the large intertribal contest powwows, the powwows that we're focusing on in our book, are nearly devoid of spiritual practice and significance. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very little bit. So their contest powwow is huge, very little spiritual significance or activity. Uh, the traditional local powwows may be very highly spiritual and uh, are typically much smaller. So there's a continuum. And you mm-hmm. can't say that all contest powwows are the same because they're not. But some are bigger than others. Some do have more spiritual components than others. And then you may have some local events that people are very open to having visitors attend as well. So that's one of the problems when you talk to other people about powwows is that everybody, as you noted a little little bit ago, everybody has their own idea of what a powwow is. And anything other than that strikes them as being odd and inauthentic. Yes, exactly. Um, This is exactly how we explain actually in our book. And this is how we come up with our cultural telling theory. We explain every component part of the Native American culture. And this is why I said it uh, or highlighted how the power is holding the Native American society today and also it will, it will be in the future. So I know there's kind of an overall structure for the powwows. Typically, what do those look like? And I know they can vary as well, but what does that typically look like? Well, in terms of the contest powwows, so again, we're talking about contest powwows and not traditional or local powwows, but most of the contest powwows, which really do, really are reflective of the Plains culture. There'll be a drum roll call if there's a drum competition. I was at a Honka celebration in powwow this last summer. They didn't have a drum roll call. Uh, The way they structured theirs, even though it was a contest powwow, they had several drums that were in the middle of the circle, 
and there was no drum competition. Uh, at Gathering of Nations, there are multiple drums. There's a drum competition, and the drum roll call is something that you'll observe at the larger contest powwows, just to make sure that everybody's present. Uh, they introduce each of those drums. They play a few, forgive me, <laughs> my music is not my strong point, but they'll, they'll play a little bit and then the, the next group's introduced and they do that. And mm -hmm. So it might be 12, 13, 20 drums, depends on how many are involved and, and invited to participate in some cases. There'll be a yeah. grand entry. Uh, the grand entry is an opportunity for all of the competitive dancers to enter the arena in an organized fashion. It begins, if you were gathering in nations, uh, the men come in from the north, the women from the south. They dance as they're coming, and then they circle around one another and around the eagle staff. The eagle staff is carried in typically by elders or important members of the community mm -hmm. uh, that leads this grand entry in. Once everybody's in, there's typically a flag song to honor the Eagle Staff. Typically, the Eagle Staff is likened to an American flag, which is kind of weird. You know, they, they, uh, you know, if somebody's there and they don't hear a national anthem at, a, at an athletic event, that's kind of odd. So the American flag is what we use to symbolize the United States. The Eagle Staff is used to represent all peoples. Yeah. Like the Ponca, they actually had different tribes, there were little strands of leather, and the names of different tribes were written on those strands of leather. So it was really pretty interesting to see that. Often there's an invocation, so some type of a prayer, sometimes in English, sometimes in Native American language. Uh, often, if it's a Native American language, they will translate for you. A welcome address is made by usually somebody of importance. Introduction of the head staff is given. And then uh, there are a lot of things that go on, competition and dancing, various dance styles. I won't go through all of them, but fancy dance, northern traditional dance, southern fancy dance, chicken dance. Uh, those are examples of some of the dances. Typically, there are age groupings and there are uh, female dances and male dances. Competition and singing takes place, drum competitions, uh, giveaways take place periodically through the events. Special honors are given by hosting dances for people who have passed away typically. Elders, others are honored, which is kind of a nice thing. Mm -hmm. uh, dance demonstrations might be taking place at particular contest powwows. So for example, uh, people may not be familiar with a smoke dance. There might be a an exhibition, a dance demonstration of a smoke dance by special dancers who will come in to perform. And that gives a little bit of information about a different tribal group. Princess competitions and crownings are, are pretty common at the larger contest palace as well. So those are all things that you might see if you were to go to a competition. It's interesting how hard it is to actually generalize, isn't it? Because there's all these different tribes and then regions and different languages and traditions. And so there are those general things that you mentioned that I thought you did very well, but trying to just describe it quickly to one person, it's like, but in this tribe, they don't, or like in the Choctaw tribe, they may allow the women to dance in their war dances where some tribes, most tribes don't. So it depends on the dance, the tribe, the region. Yeah. It's, <laughs> there's so much right. there. 
And then within a powwow, there's the announcer or MC. That's to me, I, I just think it's so critical. And I'm sure y'all feel the same way. We'll talk further about that in a bit, but there's the drummer, the singer, the dancers, as you mentioned, the princesses to do the crowning. There's all these different things that go on. And, and so what are the two types of powwows that we talked about earlier? Why don't you go into that a little more for us? Well, uh, again, as we, we noted, the traditional powwow tends to be tribal specific often has a spiritual component to it. Uh, it is small and regionally or tribally based. And then the other end of the powwow continuum is the conscious powwow, which is public. Anybody can come. And in fact, I, I would make this point. Uh, at Crown Point, when I was there, if you weren't Native American, you could have gone to that local powwow. But there wasn't anything that was of highly spiritual significance taking place there either. Mm-hmm. So just because a powwow is small and local doesn't mean that it's private. <laughs> so True. if it's advertised, you see a flyer on a billboard or on Facebook or whatever, typically pretty much anybody can come. But again, uh, many of the traditional powwows are closed for all intent and purposes to members of the tribe or to the family or to invited guests, uh, etc. So Again, on that other end, the contest powwow, anybody can come. And I talked with somebody, interviewed somebody that was the president of a powwow association for a large powwow, contest powwow, for 10 years. And he says that there are still people who believe, despite their efforts to debunk the belief, that only Native Americans can come to contest powwows. Mm-hmm, right. They want non-Native Americans to come to the contest powwows because it's it's very very important as a means to enhance understanding of Native American culture and life, and to break down some of the barriers that we have between us. So they're very very committed to trying to get you know the general public to come to their contest powwows, and they still fight that. So in the, in the book, some of our participants explain that that quite well and give very, very good examples of people not coming because they just think that they're not invited and it's not okay. Right. We have also seen some, um, uh, some announcements, a catalog, they were making uh, some contest power and the regalia and publicly showing the, their dances in Germany and in Ireland. Uh, they, they have a kind of a quiet interest also in this kind of social events as well. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's interesting, too. I mean, think about, you know, you are from Turkey, uh, Seba. So I'm sure you guys have some beautiful traditions there. And some of those you like to share with the general public and go look at these beautiful traditions we have, right? Well, Rachel, I can make an inner connection with the uh, power the power uh, because Turks before converting to Islam, they were they were having the shamans. Mm-hmm when they were having the spiritual dances, kind of making the dreams, like it's such as the same thing with the Pawa, the oh. spiritual dances. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's kind of uh, when I understand that the Pawa, which is the basic understanding was, the Pawa was kind of the shaman dancing and spiritual dances. But when I learned about the contest Pawa, this is basically kind of also unique finding for me as well. Okay, yeah, interesting. I did find that a fascinating Something that I didn't know either was um, in the book, you guys talk about how, as you mentioned earlier, they want people to come. They want non-natives to come to kind of share with them about their culture. And I do wonder if a lot of times people feel that they can't come. Also, do they not want to come because they feel intimidated by 
what if I make a wrong move? Am I supposed to sit on the benches? Am I not supposed to sit? Like, where do I go? What do I do? Do I dance with them? And some people, I think what's interesting is when you do watch non-natives there, a lot of times the natives will in, invite you to come join them out there with super easy steps, easy moves. And they're very welcoming and they don't mind if you mess up. It's just, let's go out here and have fun and kind of be a community together. You are welcome here. So yeah, I, I would hope that people have a takeaway that to the, the ones that are open to the public for these contest dances do come and let others share their culture with you. So again, what we're talking today about is the contest powwows and the name of the book. I'll mention it again, because I want to make sure people get it in their head is the native American contest powwow cultural tethering theory. So now we've discussed what a powwow is, but feel free to explain high level to our listeners, what cultural tethering theory is. We talked about briefly the importance of powwow and the contest powwow to the continuation of native American culture. So one of the, I think the easiest way to illustrate that would be everybody's familiar with education. The educational system is something that is supposed to prepare people for life and how to function effectively within American society. And different cultures would have slightly different forms of education. And what would be taught would be a little bit different because the education is dependent upon the culture that it comes from. So we talk about uh, an institution such as education. You're going to find components of the culture all aspects of the culture that run through the educational system mm -hmm. from traditions to values to goals to appropriate behavior to history or stories you know that are important to the culture so that's one of the things that today's really problematic i believe is that we're in such a state of change that people are disagreeing to a very high degree about what should be taught and I think everybody's familiar with what's been going on in the news mm -hmm. uh, these days in that regard. So if we talk about the contest powwow as an institution, then what kinds of things would you expect to see there? There's a whole bunch of them. There's art, there's music, there's food. There are values that are exhibited. Uh, we honor the veterans at a contest powwow. We honor elders at a contest powwow. We believe in generosity. There's clear evidence of how important it is to give to others. So what I'd like for you to think about are each of those components of the powwow as being a tether, all right? So mm -hmm. in any society, you have religion. It's a tether. So Seba is from Turkey, and Islam is important. So Islam is a tether for Seba. Seba mm -hmm. knows what it, Islam is about why it's important, and it gives guidance in terms of behaviors and thoughts that are appropriate and valuable, both him and within the society. Very interesting. I, I think that explains it well. Seba, do you have something too? Yes, I do. And actually, um, do the theory, once we come up, there was a big, uh, huge gap in the uh, literature. Mm -hmm. Because in sociology, was basically the culture is not paying attention much. Uh, when I was teaching the culture and society class, uh, I was adopted the book by Wendy Grishwald, Culture and Societies in a Changing World. She was explaining in the 1980s, uh, the culture was not paying attention for the sociology. Basically, sociology was learning everything from anthropology. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, then the, the recent decade, we were having uh, culture, symbols, and art, and education. And Steve explained the 
Emil Durkheim perspective, how the institutions are being a very, very much tool for the society. Like one of them is uh, how they were using the education, uh, the Native, Native American, uh, Americans to assimilate them. Uh, these are the these are the tools. I, I think the institution is by basic itself is a contest power. From my perspective, as being Turkish American and bringing the and growing, I have two children, and uh, raising them with their identity. That, that's a social identity is the main a uh, main issue we need to stick with. For example, Thanksgiving is coming, and who can eat those um, turkeys because they must be halal. And I was traveling to Dallas to find out the halal turkey to bring my children because it must be either kosher or the process of hygiene is very important, how they were processed. So they were they were growing up this kind of uh, identity as well. So they were learning also the process and how they, how they come up with the, being a Turkish American and then keeping their religious identity as well. So we'll go into more detail about cultural tethering later on, but first you share in chapter one, which is titled The Powwow from Sacred Spiritual Gathering to Competitive Event about the four areas around the basics of powwows. So let's start with the first one, which is from where did the name powwow originate and what does it mean? Well, the researchers, to be frank, can't tell you exactly where it came from. So what, what they do know is that there were several traditions that used terms that were like the term powwow or when combined or some version of those terms came up with powwow. So going back to early New England, uh, the medicine men uh, in that area were known as Puau, P-U-A-U. Shepard in 1648 described powwow, P-A-W-W-O-W, as native holy leaders and powwowing, uh, involve spiritual activities of their shamans. So you have versions of that term so far. The proto aliquian form of Pawewa meant he has dream power, and Pawakan was a Cree term for dream spirit. So all in all, if you look at it, there clearly was an association between the religious activities of the people and the holy people uh, of tribal groups, and this term that became known as powwow. So at some point, the term powwow became associated with the spiritual gatherings and activities of Native Americans that quite often involved dancing. Hmm. So fascinating. And we know that powwows originated back in the 1800s, right? I mean, that's, that's what my own thoughts were. I don't know if that's correct. Is it Yes, it is. Gatherings were held by the indigenous people well before the arrival of the colonies. Maybe that's why maybe the colonies, when they came and the power was officially, they were providing like 1646 because they're trying to eliminate the Native American culture and the power was, they were seen the power as a very prominent power. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they have, they, they probably aware that they have to take, they take the power away from their hands. So the, it is recorded by early explorers and evangelists and as far as the public power in, in which many people were welcome to attend and the Omaha tribe has conducted its harvest dance celebration, I think uh, since 1804 and the Ponca celebrated its 145th annual powwow last summer. Wow. And also, yeah, the first recorded <laughs> intertribal contest powwow was held in the, I don't know how to pronounce this one, Carlisle Indian School in conjunction with the- Oh, Carlisle, the, like, yeah. 1929 homecoming. 
And at that first uh, intertribal event, it was announced that whoever won it, whatever tribe that individual was from, was a fancy dance competition. Mm -hmm. that tribe would forever be entitled to host the world champion fancy dance from that time on so the first winner was Gus McDonald who was a ponca and the ponca have a world championship fancy dance competition every year half since then it's crazy to me to think that there was an original winner Mr. McDonald he was the first winner (laughs) I never (laughs) even thought back that far So, so what do you think led, I think you kind of mentioned some of this, but what led to what we now know as the contest powwow? Um, I think in chapter one, we talked about uh, those factors. We consider that they were very important to uh, result in altercation of the Native American daily life and the traditional practices. We number them genocide, reservation system, cultural genocide, the Indian boarding school system, uh, Christian governmental efforts to eliminate power and dancing and government restrictions on power and dance, dancing for income and entertainment of the public, and uh, the marriage of power, dancing, and competition. And then finally, uh, the pan Indian moment. But genocide was really uh, an important factor that got everything started. Most people don't like change. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So we don't like to change. So Change does happen within cultures for a variety of reasons, but as a general rule, we're not going to give up our spiritual activities uh, unless there's some compelling reason to do so. Just like that, the dance and ceremonial activity that was related with the spirituality of early Native American peoples, it wouldn't have changed to the extent that it has if it weren't for the impact of genocide. So ultimately, when the colonialists came and the expansionists sought to take more and more tribal lands, Native Americans were killed and threatened with extermination, literally, if the people were not going to give up and change change where they lived, for example. Mm-hmm. So because of the technological superiority, uh, one of the things that Native Americans could not do, and particularly after numbers of Native Americans were lost due to disease, was to be able to fight these people who wanted to invade the lands and ultimately change their behavior. One of the things that that we came across as we did our research was something referred to as the doctrine of discovery. Because I've always wondered as a human being, somebody who cares about others, how could people come to another land and murder people and take what they have? I've never, ever really understood that. Mm -hmm. Greed, obviously, is part of it. One of the things that gave some legitimacy to that activity uh, was something referred to as the doctrine of discovery, Uh, and you may or may not have heard of that. It was uh, a doctrine put forth by Pope Nicholas in 1455. So just as about the time that we started to see the European folks going out in boats and exploring and conquering peoples, this doctrine of discovery came to the forefront. And it led people that were going out to believe that they were just in conquering and stealing from indigenous groups throughout the world. Uh, The doctrine implored Christians to attack, enslave, and kill the indigenous peoples they encountered and to acquire all of their assets. Mm -hmm. So basically this doctrine said, hey, if you're going out and exploring and you come across peoples, it's okay in the name of all that's good in Holly to subdue them Uh, to enslave them and to take the lands for the betterment of the kingdom. Hmm. Never heard of it. 
and it is something that was really, really important. So what it allowed people to do is to engage in genocide. And genocide, according to the United Nations, includes uh, when you have a group of people, ethnic group, a racial group, uh, a religious group, or a group from a particular nation. Genocide occurs when you kill members of those groups, cause seriously bodily harm to them, try to bring about the member's destruction, try to prevent births in the group, and transferring children from one group to another. So as we go through this particular chapter, we'll talk a little bit about the boarding schools. But the boarding schools is a very specific example of transferring children from one group to another. Uh, we'll talk about concerted efforts to sterilize Native American women in the 60s and 70s. Right. Can I stop you right there for a second? Oh my gosh. That that's something that when I first heard about that a few years ago, I was like, that's not that long ago. That's crazy. This 1960s and 1950s, actually, we were just having the conversation before Uh um, talking to, because uh, between 1946 and 1965 is the American dream days, which, which Mm -hmm. we have, we have 76 million population Mm -hmm. in those years. And we were having the almost for 3.84 Fertility rate, which is a child, eight childbearing women, how many children they can have. This is a very good number because the global number I was checking at that time, that was almost the same number, which is a United States that doesn't need any immigrants to be capable of running by, by itself. But right. you were just having the high number. We have less than 2.0 right now. If you're looking at the whites, 1.8. If you're looking at the Asian Americans, 1.7. Black African Americans, they're going to be 1.8 which is lower than the global uh, fertility rate. But right mm. now, uh, at that time, you were increasing the numbers 3.8 for the United States overall, but then you are sterilizing almost up to 50% of the Native Americans uh, between 1960 and 1970. Wow, wow, wow. That's absolutely insane and shocking i think a lot of people don't know that still right yeah i did not know it yeah <laughs> it's just it's so sad too i think about a lot of my native american ancestors who never had children and i you know they were married didn't have children i've always kind of wondered was there anything in there to do with that but who knows rachel this is like if you give some specific numbers when the first the europeans they were sent their food on the land the Native American population was 5 million. We're talking about the 14th, 15th century. The first Portuguese, they just arrived and then followed by the Denmarks, Germans. Mm-hmm. At that time, they were Prussians. But at the beginning of the 1900s, the numbers were 300, uh, less than 400,000, 375,000. So in all those years, you cannot just blame the disease. But this is like, this yeah. is what we're about, a systematic uh, forcing the Native Americans for the, uh, the mainstream dominant society. Yeah. Right. Some I know we're trying to say that we have this conversation with Steve uh, because I know some of the, uh, the literature they didn't use specifically genocide. They were using the ethnic cleansing, but ethnic cleansing is no different than ethnicity is the product also of the culture, too. You're just eliminating the culture. You're just eliminating the language. You're just eliminating the religion. Steve mentioned about the, those boarding schools. You're just taking out those children uh, from their families by force. Some of them are by willingly because they were malnutrition. They don't have enough food there home so they were just giving willingly if like for example Zuni tribe they were just opposing that they, they were arrested and they were sent to one of the the worst uh, federal state uh, prison in California Al, what was the name Alcartes Alcartes oh, yeah they, they were shot they were killed or during the reservation we just talked about like 1830 they were just taking them from their land to the kind of relocating them to another land uh, for example you're just re- relocating how do you pronounce the Winnebago 
tribe like three times you're just relocating them from northeast Iowa to Minnesota and the second from Minnesota to South Dakota and finally from South Dakota to Nebraska and uh, this is basically systematically has been done and never ended even 1960s and 70s which is we're talking about the four decades five, five decades ago I mean seriously I mean the 1970s is when I was born that was still going on at that time Wow. And I know that we have to give each, every society has had terrible things happen at one point or another, but I think about the, the Jews and the Holocaust and how awful it was. And yet there's so much less education around the same kind of thing that happened with the native Americans. And I think it's getting better. People are starting to understand it and hear about, about it more, especially as we're truly acknowledging history and not trying to kind of stuff it away. Cause it's not happy. It's not fun sometimes when it comes to native Americans, but it's, it's something that we do need to acknowledge and learn from and grow from just like we did with the Holocaust. Rachel, I think it's a great point because in order to make the Holocaust possible or in order to make the, the systematic killing for the Native American possible, you have to find a scapegoat. Like how did Joseph mm. Goldman, he come right. up with a theory, scapegoat theory, and they made the, the Jewish people as the, as the culprit, as the victim. And, or they, they were showing that as they, they were the problem of the Nazi. Right, uh, right. <laughs> and we explained it in our uh, chapter one and chapter two, and in somewhat most of the chapters, social Darwinism theory, how Native Americans were seen, how they were forced to see as inferior or the savages. And they were using the social Darwinistic theory. We can save the men, but we need to kill the Indian in them. There was a kind of main ideology they were just kind of exposing to the society. And the society was after all those systematically doing those things and they were accepting that and they were relocating them. Even after the relocation, they were just making Indian territory, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, and the portion of the Iowa. They were just making in these territories, they were making the colonies. In those colonies, what they were doing is just domestic farming or some other things so they can understand or they can just integrate themselves to the society. Not right now, we call those colonies as reservations, but the main idea never changed. Just save the man, kill the Indian in him. Wow. So those factors that we talked about, the genocide, the Indian boarding schools, to name a few, the reservation system, was there anything else that y'all wanted to talk about in, on any of those points before we move on? If you think it might be helpful, I have three quotes. Uh, that I think would be really, really interesting to share with you. Have you ever heard the term, the only good Indian is a dead Indian? Oh, yes. <laughs> okay. It's actually not what the guy said. So I want to share what he said because it's even worse. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. So, so here's the quote, or well, actually the, the story. Phil Sheridan was appointed by President Ulysses Grant to pacify the Indians of the Plains. According to Captain Charles Nordstrom, uh, Comanche, Peter approached Sheridan and introduced himself. Me, touch away, me good engine. Sheridan, according to Charles Nordstrom, smiled sardonically as he replied, the only good Indians I ever saw were dead. So Sad. not only did he say it, but he said it to the guy's face. And God. Uh, I, I don't <sighs> understand it. So the point is, is that you know, this goal that was held of trying to destroy the culture mm -hmm. was deeply, deeply seated by people who were in charge of, of the military, for example. The other one I wanted to share, I want to share this other one. Iron Price was the director of the Bureau of Indian Affairs in 1881, and he was very convinced that Native American culture had to go away. It just had to go away. 
he was quoted as saying in a presentation to Congress, savage and civilized life cannot live and prosper on the same ground. One of the two must die. If the Indians are to be civilized and become happy and prosperous people, which is certainly the object and intent of our government, they must first learn our language and adopt our modes of life. We are 50 millions of people and they are only one fourth of a million. The few must yield to the many. So the idea of, of Native Americans fully assimilating into society was something that the director of the BIA at that time believed hmm. to be very, very, very vital. Interesting. Can I add a couple of uh, numbers and I would like to make a point yeah, on that? Yeah, I love numbers, bring it on. Thanks so much. I think once we talk about the boarding schools by 1925, it was run by the Christians and the Christians uh, institution, like 357 Indian boarding schools. And uh, they were like 83% of the native children, all their school age, they attended the boarding schools in 1926, Native American boarding schools by the healing coalition. So once we bring, bring in all those numbers, one trying to make the point on that, you are just... 1946, you are just kind of prohibiting in the New England section, the power is not prohibited. And then in, in 1671, worshiping, because they, they were just kind of like stereotyping and saying that stigmatizing, worshiping to the devil or other false god in Massachusetts by Bay Colony. Once we explained this cultural tethering theory, all our findings was kind of leading us that way. You're taking today, like 3% of the only Native American, they were, they were following their native Indian uh, religion. Mm -hmm. So you're basically, you're taking the religion. And when I ask this question, is Steve, Steve, your children, they, do they speak uh, native Navajo? No, my wife is full Navajo. She does not speak Navajo fluently. My children do not speak Navajo at all. Do, do they understand? Like, how about, do they understand? No, because they weren't okay. around enough to okay. learn. Okay, can mm -hmm. I ask another question? Sure. Are they Christian? Are they Native American religion? They, they are not members of Native American tradition, okay. traditional spirituality. So ba basically, it's not just we cannot make the generalization, but most of the friends I have Native Americans, and the, most of the numbers, once we look at it, the religion taken out. Language was taken out. Most of the customs or do they know about anything about the elderly? How do they communicate? How do they know about uh, those meanings? And th th these are the terrors we, we explain in our in our things. I think what is standing right now, transmitting those meanings and symbols and uh, those culture is the power. That's why power is more important than as it was mm -hmm. and has been. If I were Native American, I would make, I would create, I will establish more power and I will spoil all those dancers and their tribes to come, encourage them to come and dance and represent their tribes. Mm -hmm. Because they can take your language, religion, everything else from your hand. But if they're taking your social identity, then they can, at that time, they can really conquer you and they yeah. will be completely integrated in their society. Wow. You can take, they can take your land, they can take your establishments, they can take your buildings, they can take your money, but the social identity, which is you're the social capital, your culture is the social capital for yourself. If they want to invest something else, because you, you already lost like 87% of the, your uh, natives are living in urban cities. They are not living in reservations. Mm -hmm. So if, if you want to keep them, maintain their, their identity, you have to create a collective identity. The collective identity is leading the power. So we're talking about the contest power. That's why we come up with the theory. Love so they that. have to make establishments on the contest power 
because at Kapala, what we see is transmitting the Native American culture. Mm-hmm. As today, as of today, like 30% of the Native Americans, they do not consider, uh, they do not affiliate with the tribes. They were just affiliated with the, they just called themselves Native American. So what we assume is this number is going to be increasing. You've definitely opened my eyes about, I always just thought powwows is, hey, let's get together. And oh, it's so fun to see all the pretty colors and regalia. And then there's sometimes the spiritual side of it in certain cases. And I never thought about it as that, oh, there was a term you just used a second ago, the identity. But that's why the powwows are super crucial. I never thought of them as crucial. I thought of them as just part of the tradition yeah, again, think of that. Um, the things that hold cultures together are their language, their religion, gone. Native American religions are disappearing at an astounding rate. Very few of the languages are still spoken fluently by anybody but elders. Yep, that's very true. The spiritual practices are disappearing. Family relationships, how people used to live. Hogan's, uh, my wife's family used to live in a Hogan's. It's a, a one-room structure that's not uncommon with Native American traditional communities. Now we live in houses with divided rooms. They divide us. <laughs> we don't spend time with our elders because we've moved to cities. Uh, we don't know our elders. The elders don't have an opportunity to transmit things. So I'm not going to go into a whole heck of a lot more, but the book goes into more detail of all of these important aspects of culture that help to keep the culture together that are disappearing in Native American communities. Yeah. And we don't like to say that because we're not Native Americans, we're outsiders. But the research that has been conducted shows very, very clearly that Native American culture is disappearing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the powwow, contest powwow, is one way in which the collective identity of Native Americans throughout North America that share many of the same values and, and traditions can maintain those. So as Seba said, the people who can, who live in cities that find out that they're Native American and want to know something what it's like, even if they go and hear a few words of a Native American language and hear a few of the stories told by the MCs, that it's something that gives them a a better awareness of who their people are Mm -hmm. and where they came from. And there aren't a whole lot of other places where that's happening. You opened my eyes about some things. And I think that our listeners are going to have some aha moments too, you know, whether native or non-native in some cases. So I thought chapter two had an interesting title, similarities and differences between the gathering of nations contest powwow and a university of New Mexico Lobo basketball game. Explain why you chose that as a title. And you also mentioned contest powwow dancing as competitive sport. Tell us more about all of that. As I explained a little bit earlier, when I first went to Gathering of Nations, I thought I was um, going to an athletic event, (laughs) a local (laughs) basketball game. So what I wanted to do was to look at the structure of the contest powwow and the structure of an intercollegiate athletic event and compare them. In other words, if you were to go to an athletic event, what kinds of promotion and staging activities take place in both of those environments. Mm -hmm. And what we found was that they're virtually the same. So if you think about a a collegiate athletic event, you have people that are going to plan the event, advertise the event. They're going to buy ads. They're going to find sponsors. They're going to make programs. 
They're going to sell concessions. They're going to have souvenirs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So as you go down through the list of things that go into putting on University of New Mexico logo basketball game and the Gathering of Nations contest power, uh, they were virtually the same. One of the differences was that instead of a national anthem, they had a, a flag song. And instead of the flag, there was the eagle staff. That was a, a prominent difference. The number of different types of concessions and souvenirs that you could purchase at the Gathering Nations was vastly superior. But for all intents and purposes, if you were going to be able to promote and stage in a successful athletic event, you probably would be able to stage and promote a successful contest powwow. Mm-hmm. Derek Matthews himself, he's the individual who is responsible for starting and continues to run the Gathering of Nations, said that a lot of what he does there is based upon what goes on at basketball games. <laughs> so uh, there are those types of similarities. So that's why we looked at that. And then the, the, the next logical question was, okay, so it's kind of like, mm, they're kind of alike in how they're promoted in stage. The question is, is, is the contest power really a, an event in which competition takes place and can be considered a sport? And in talking with uh, dancers and those who put on the contest powwows, the answer was, well, of course it is, but the literature, and I'm sorry to refer to that, I sound like a, an egghead, uh, didn't really say that. You know, I only uh-huh. found, we only found one study which somebody said, you know, the dancing at a contest pow might be likened to Native American rodeo in terms of athleticism, but that was it. So nobody really looked at it or interviewed folks to see what they thought. So that was kind of exciting to us because that, that was something that would be, again, a contribution to the literature. So uh, we wanted to look at these contest powwows. And the first question would be, does it meet the definition of what a sport is? So real quickly, uh, sport in terms of a general definition used by sociologists in Europe and North America, sport uh, is a physical activity that involves challenges or competitive contests. And you would have to say contest powwow dancing is competitive. It is a challenge. Uh, So in that very, very, and it's obviously dancing, so it's a physical activity. So on a very superficial level, it does meet that definition. Mm -hmm. Uh, We went into a lot more detail in terms of philosophic definitions and criteria. And what we found was through the literature review is that at least through our literature review, you could say it was. Well, then the question was, uh, what do the dancers themselves think? Do they think that it is a competitive sport? So the vast majority of our our studies participants agreed and conveyed quite clearly that they believed that contest powwow dancing is a sport. Some of the things that we found uh, was that the majority of them train physically on a regular basis so that they can compete well. And the majority of them also practice uh, their dancing outside of the powwow environment itself. Mm -hmm. They participate with a serious mindset. A lot of them used examples of competitive sport. They say, when I dance, it's no different than when I'm getting ready to participate in a basketball game. When I'm putting on my regalia, I feel like I'm putting on my basketball uniform. I danced like I played hockey 
it, it was hard ass. <laughs> so that <laughs> forgive the cursing. But Quote, you, right? <laughs> you would hear all of those things. It's dedicated. I'm focused. So the things that you would hear from an athlete are exactly what you hear from them. And again, they believed and conveyed that it was a competitive sport. So to many people in our the dominant American society, sport captures our imagination. So making it clear to people, to the public, that it's a competitive event uh, may draw some more interest because uh, Americans as, as a general rule like and enjoy competition. Uh, one of the things that was an enigma in my mind or a concern, if you're familiar with the win at all cost ethic, like I'm gonna do anything I can to win, mm -hmm. that seems to go against uh, traditional Native American teachings. Mm. In other words, it's it's not cool to to cheat, lie, and steal. <laughs> and, right. And victory. So, how do they go about their competing? Do they compete like individualistic American, where I am the center of what I am, or do they maintain a collectivist, meaning uh, the group is more important than I am myself, attitude and value when they're out there dancing. And what was really interesting was they, they all said they were highly serious about it. Winning was important, but most of them said it wasn't the most important. A lot of them said things like, I really enjoy visiting with family and friends and making friends mm -hmm. at these contest powerhouse. So that was really, really important to them. Uh, it was important for them to, quote, dance hard. And the MCs said, say that a lot, dance hard, I can hear that a lot at the contest powerhouse. Right. <laughs> you're, supposed to be, you're supposed to be doing your best. And you do your best partly to, to try to win, but it's also important to do your best. So the question is, um, can you compete hard and not care just about yourself? And what mm -hmm. we found was that, indeed, they still cared about other people. Uh, they still wanted people to play, to compete fairly. They wanted people to compete in a spirit of sportsmanship and peace and kindness. So a lot of the values that were important to the people were carried into this competitive environment. And that was to me rather surprising because I'm used to, you know, the Americanized version, individualistic cultures version of sport where you are supposed to win and all the other things can kind of be put aside for that 90 minutes while you're competing. Mm -hmm. These assimilation theories and everything, what they've done to the Native American people, they were all kind of forcing the Native Americans, but they were finding a way to create their social identity. And that's why they were staying alive. For example, contrary to assimilation goals, Native Americans use sport to celebrate their identity and autonomy as a people. Mm -hmm. And the Northern Arapaho or Eastern the Sushon have transformed the meaning of the Sushon. basketball. Sushon to basketball to suit their cultural needs and re rendering it as a new method of expressing the native identity and the resistance both on and off the court. Hmm. And maybe we should explain the gym tour, Steve, um, how they has been. There. Sure. Most people who are familiar with sport history are at least uh, somewhat familiar with Jim Thorpe. Uh, Jim Thorpe is in the Football Hall of Fame. He was an Olympic champion and he also played baseball. He won Olympic gold medals in the pentathlon and decathlon. And he was uh, really, he was named one of the top athletes of the century by ESPN and other organizations. So 
he's he's really held up as being a very very successful athlete and a, and a Native American who went to boarding schools in addition and not everybody would know that necessarily but uh, as, as a Native American he's looked at as being one of the more outstanding athletes but one of the things that people might not know is that he really did adhere to traditions of his people and he did not compete for fame he says, I didn't compete for fame. I didn't compete for money. I competed for the love of competing, which is something that I really appreciate because as a coach, I might've won more games if I was a meaner guy, <laughs> but uh, caring about others was, was really, really important to him. And he actually died in poverty because this was true in Native American cultures. Most of what he earned, he gave away. Uh, his <laughs> wife said, uh, we're broke. Jim has nothing but his name and his memories. He has spent money on his own people and given it away. So he, he confessed, I played clean, I played hard, but he very much had internalized the Native American way and the responsibility that he had to his people and how he competed was reflected in that as well. And also, when we look at the Jim Torpy case, based on our materials, it appears that Torpe, Torpe rejected the mainstream sports calling for competitors to compete for fame or wealth, as Steve mentioned, to use any means possible to do so. Efforts to assimilate Torpe or into the dominant culture seem to have failed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So despite being in the boarding school and right. playing high-level sports, uh, professional sports, right. he, uh, he didn't become that. So there are uh, examples of that that we bring up in the book. Uh, the medicine game is an example. That, Stick bowl. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, individuals can compete and still maintain their traditions, their traditional values, uh, despite what it goes on around them. Mm-hmm. So uh, we found that to be very, very interesting. But all said and done, the research shows that contest power dancing is a competitive sport and that the people who participate are able to maintain their traditional and tribal values. That, that's what they conveyed to us. So that was a really cool thing. So there are a lot of people who might look at the competition aspect of the contest power and say that that's a negative thing. As, as we found, it, if it holds true with others, the native traditions can be maintained while they do that. And yes, exactly. So that's a fantastic thing in, in our and it may be bringing in different age groups that otherwise may be not as excited about the traditional powwows, you know, as they're still maturing. And so it's a great way to get the whole family involved from day one and into the culture and into the community. So that that's really, again, just one more thing that you guys have brought to light and made me think more about, about how the uh, contest powwow can actually be considered a sport. And I see why now that makes so much sense. Something super crucial about every powwow is the MC. And I personally find them to be just really interesting. They have to be knowledgeable in so many aspects of culture and maintain control of the schedule. And of course they throw an occasional joke. Um, I've never been to a powwow where the MC wasn't just hilarious along the way, but really good at what they do. So you label them the mediators of culture and traditions. Tell us more about that. A mediator is somebody that explains to, to an audience the way things are to this, this group that doesn't. And so they serve a very, very important role in making that communication. So our contest powwow MCs or announcers, I tend to call them announcers, 
have a very, very important role in the contest powwows. We see people from all kinds of tribes, over 500 tribes at gathering of nations. You have non-Native Americans that are in the crowd, 11,000 people. So there are a lot of people there that don't share all of the same knowledge, uh, information, values, etc. So the announcer really is a key to somebody like me who's in attendance that doesn't know a lot about what's going on. Mm-hmm. And that is also true with, with individuals, as we said, if it's uh, somebody who is Native American and did not grow up in Native American culture, then they're going to hear some potential creation stories. They're going to hear what the flag song is. They're going to see honoring of veterans. So a lot of what uh, is important is exhibited. And the MCs discuss those things a lot of times. We talked about the jokes. And I I can tell you with a high degree of certainty, if I didn't live on the reservation for seven years, Mm -hmm. that I wouldn't have understood a lot of the jokes. So right. <laughs> There's a whole different humor there, right? Grandma jokes and <laughs> jokes your aunties. And three are three-legged dog jokes and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> they don't, or they, they talk about commodity cheese. It's mm-hmm. like right. Most people in American society wouldn't know what that is. So the jokes <laughs> don't make any sense to them. And they even take this time in some cases to explain you know, what was meant for for folks like me. So the announcers are really important. And as you said, they they know they seem to know so much and keep things moving. But mm-hmm. you don't just become an announcer. And that's something that again people don't realize that there's a, a process that the two announcers, MCs that we interviewed, grew up going to traditional powwows, mm-hmm. competing in contest powwows, playing uh, and singing on the drum, having a mentoring process. And that through all of that, all of that knowledge is, is something that they have. Then they have to have a good voice. Then both of them say they practice using their voice. Mm. So it's not something that somebody does. And, and I found it to be really fascinating uh, how hard they worked to become announcers. Now, a lot of times they get their break because of some unusual circumstance. Uh, A researcher named Jello did a study. Actually, he described kind of what power announcers do primarily is what he did. But it's very interesting to learn what these MCs go through to Mm -hmm. get where they are and to be at the top of their game and to become in high demand. And and both of them were right always say that we're going to keep our sources anonymous so I can't can't give names but right very, very high profile individuals so I was very appreciative of having had the opportunity to interview them some of the tribal groups were the Cheyenne Chippewa Kochiti Tewa Colorado River Indian Tribe Cree Crow Dakota Sioux Kadatsa Lakota Sioux Mandau Navajo Ojibwe Potawatomi Pueblo, Shoshone, Sioux, Tuni, and Zuni. <laughs> so, okay. Pueblos to Plains to up north. Actually, we studied the topic first very well, and Steve actually has spent so much time about the literature review because this is a very sensitive topic, and we have to be very also vulnerable and sensitive to the topic. The time, the society, culture has been changing rapidly. It's most quickly than ever before. 
and a Native, uh, Native American culture as well. Once we talk about the technology and the institution, we give some specific examples how they're how the Native American culture is going to be uh, affecting by the globalizations and all those technological internet, and how, how they are going to keep the, those uh, those their culture as a coherently in, intact. So I think one of the findings we also used in our uh, the cover uh, veterans and the elderly, like how much they were being respected. We made this one as our book cover as well, and the, uh, these those pictures were taken by that Steve and uh, regularly also, and the, the importance also also female, and then they're uh, they regular color. Once one of the findings, maybe we can talk about the uh, power drama. Maybe Steve can explain that. Yes, sure. actually, that's great. Good idea. So when we, we ask our dancing participants what type of powwow that they like best, the majority like the contest powwow the best. Some preferred traditional powwows. And one of the problems that people had that our participants had with the contest powwow was the, the the general environment that some of them believed that the contest powwow environment was a little bit negative because there was such a great focus on competition mm. they said that they didn't feel like that that personally but there were people who did compete that just were kind of ugly and made the experience negative as a, yeah. con a consequence so powwow drama takes place when individuals are participating in the contest powwow dancing that bring negative energy uh, and behavior to the environment. And it, it's a downer, for lack of a better word, <laughs> right? You know, to them. They don't, they don't like to be around that. So that is the one aspect of the contest powwow that you know, several of our participants identified as being a problem and a reason why they preferred uh, the other. But for the most part, they said, hey, we really like these contest powwows because it's fun to compete. And they acknowledge things such as not everybody can win. And, you know, that's okay. If we have 200 people in the stance, uh, not everybody can win. So I just want to do the very best I can and keep getting better. So it's great. That's, that's a great attitude. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting too, that I know that with every generation, you're going to look at the next generation and go, oh, those silly kids, what are they doing? Or they're not honoring our traditions or they're making changes. What are they doing? And they're adapting, like you said earlier, Seba, the internet even bringing in some influences as well. And, and I noticed there was a powwow that I was thinking about going to, and they were very adamant that you couldn't have any coloring that was the bright colors kind of from the 80s. You couldn't yeah. wear anything fluorescent. And when you talk about tradition and change, that's one of the things that I explored with the participants. Oh. In their lifetimes, they saw changes and they mm -hmm. acknowledged that uh, the regalia are becoming brighter, more colorful, flashier. And there are people who don't like that. Traditionally, the colors were more muted. So anytime that there's a change, somebody's going to be irritated by that and uh, mm -hmm. resist it just the way it is. But as one of our participants stated, you know, we're living in modern times and we, we change Native American people change. Mm -hmm. That's true with any culture. Earlier, we talked high level about cultural tethering theory. So let's go deeper into the meaning and the topics researched. In our book, I use religion as an example. So let, let's assume that somebody is an adherent to Native American spirituality, a traditional Native American, quote, religion, because the religion is not the best term for it. Mm -hmm. 
and a Christian minister comes into the environment and the minister's goal is to evangelize this individual and convert him or her to Christianity. So that, that's a, a real situation that happens all the time. So we look at it like this, spirituality would have been one of the things that made Native Americans Native Americans and differentiated them from Christian Europeans. Here's the question. So if religion is looked at as a tether, one of the things that really holds people within their culture, if you're going to convert somebody or assimilate somebody into this new way, you have to break away at that tether. Mm-hmm. And if you're familiar with a rope, ropes have little threads, right? Mm-hmm. So let's look at song. Song is being one of those threads of this cultural tether, which is spirituality, okay? If we change the songs that are related to worship, then we're severing that song thread from the Native American spirituality, how how they would have sung, what they would have sung, what was appropriate to sing. Mm -hmm. And they start singing songs of the Christians. The view of what God is, is another thread. It must be severed and regrounded into Christianity. Creation stories, another thread. How you're supposed to dress, how you're supposed to worship. So if you look at what goes on in spiritual worship, all of those threads, if you're going to become fully Christian, the evangelist would say, have to be cut and Mm -hmm. regrounded within Christianity. So, okay, so here's the question. Uh, Have you heard the term walking in two worlds? Yes. And what does that mean to you? Well, when you, you know, maybe I I especially think of mixed bloods, for instance, that maybe have white mom and an Indian dad, for instance. And so maybe they're dealing with both cultures. So if if that individual were to become fully native in terms of culture, Mm -hmm. he or she would have to give up or sever some of those non-native things that make you a non-native. True, true. And so some people can be partially assimilated. And if they're partially assimilated, then they can walk in both worlds, but not fully in one and not fully in the other. Mm-hmm. Right. So okay. And if we're looking back at Christianity versus Native American spirituality, that if that religion is going to be fully changed, all of the threads that make up that religion have to be severed and regrounded within Christianity. Oh. It's the same with language. Uh, individuals who are fully fluent and only fluent in their native language, they don't, language is very complex. It has a lot to do with culture. Beliefs are conveyed, traditions are conveyed through language. So if you're going to learn English, you have to learn about that environment as well. And what you find is if somebody is only fluent in English, a lot of what native speakers would understand is lost. They don't really, really get that. Mm-hmm. So the point is, is, in terms of cultural theory, cultural tethering theory, we're going to change people and change cultures that things have to be severed or destroyed, whatever term that you want to use. Just like we said, change the worship, change the origin stories, change the clothing that we wear, change the ceremonies that we wear, and then fully adopt what somebody else has to offer that's what is necessary for full assimilation to really take place. Mm, right. For example, okay. Rachel, in, in 1878, all 800 remaining members of the Northern Arapaho tribe spoke their native uh, language fluently. In 2005, 
fewer than 7% of the tribe's 6,000 members support Arabo fluently. Or another example would be, as of today, like uh, the Salish tribe had fewer than 50 fluent speakers, none under the age of 50. Ah. Or uh, how to pronounce this one? Katuni tribe has fewer than 12, can only speak their language fluently. Hmm. Or Ayak language had only two fluent speakers, Man Mandan had only six, the Abaneki and Oshad had 20, and the Iowa had only five. So this is kind of, uh, we are giving the specific yeah. numbers, but as Steve was mentioning. And also, some, some of the, um, the literature we saw that the people said, my mom is the last generation of the full bloods in her tribe, which is the, there are not really many traditional people left. Or we, he brought up that the internet, internet is no place for tribalism because cultural life depends on the human interaction and for its creation and, and computer-based learning, we said that cannot save the culture existing on their life support. Mm, interesting, right? I never thought about that. Like if you, if you fully immerse in one, you may have to give up parts or all of the exactly. other and vice versa. Right. right. And yeah. so what, what he just did by sharing the numbers on yeah. the loss of languages, that these languages, which are so important to who the individual is, are being lost. And it's a part of culture that it, once it's gone, it's never coming back. It, yeah, how can you make it come back? You don't have people speaking it fluently, it's not going to do that. So mm -hmm. cultural tethering, if you're looking at groups of people, they're tethered by their institutions and individuals are. So if you want to change an individual or change a culture, you have to get rid of those things. Uh, and that's indeed what the government did, yes? They tried to do away with yeah. the religion, the spirituality. They tried to do with the ceremonial dance. They tried to make them not speak their language. They wanted to make sure that they did the kind of work that Anglos, white people did. And they tried to cut all of those tethers that made Native Americans who they were. Hmm. But... Fortunately, you know, a lot of the elders hang, held on to those things, uh, even, you know, when they were threatened with being jailed uh, or having rations taken away if they were found guilty in the court of Indian offenses for having engaged in dancing. They were truly cornered. I, I, I don't judge any decisions made back then by the tribes or the leaders, because what would you have done, right? right. So... Now, you dare to cover a topic which can be very controversial, quote, who can legitimately claim to be a Native American? So better you than me. That one's a doozy. Tell us more about your thoughts around that. I'll be happy to. Let me put it this way. Uh, my children are half Navajo. Uh, they both have certificates of Indian blood. They're both members of the tribe. But neither speaks Navajo. Mm -hmm. Neither is been involved in traditional uh, spiritual activities. Uh, their knowledge of the history is limited. And mm -hmm. so that, that may be my fault, might be my wife's fault. People can blame whoever they want. But factually, they could say, yes, I'm, I'm Navajo. But True. if you were to ask them anything about being Navajo, they wouldn't be able to tell you much. Yeah. So both Seb and I are interested in culture. Mm -hmm. And because we're interested in culture, to us, culture is very, very important. Understanding the culture that you would like to be affiliated with, uh, you know, the tribal culture. Uh, I think that for my children to legitimately claim 
that they are Navajo and try to convince somebody of that, they'd have to know something about the culture. Interesting. So I don't have any reason to fight or be ugly about it, but just because I am genetically Native American doesn't make me Native American. Seba said uh, a little earlier, you know, if you take the culture away from the people, uh, the people cease to exist as a people. Hmm. You know, you're only unique as a people because of your culture. Yeah. So if you're a part of the culture, you have to understand the culture. At least that's our, our belief. Yeah, very uh, interesting. I mean, there's so much you could debate around yeah. that, right? It's such a big can of worms. <laughs> yeah, and on the other hand, you can't tell my my children that they're not Navajo because genetically they are Navajo. They're genetically, yeah. Okay, it's six of one and half a dozen of another. That's right. <laughs> it comes from your like, perspective. It, it's interesting to think if your children are Navajo but don't practice the culture, are they still Navajo? On the other hand. If your children are not by blood Navajo, but they practice the Navajo culture, are they Navajo? Traditionally, you'd probably say no, but you'd look at them and say, oh, well, they are people who appreciate the Navajo culture. And so, yeah, I guess someone could ask the question, are you Navajo by blood? Yes or no. And also, do you follow the culture? Yes or no. Yeah, that might be a way to look at it. But I think that that traditionally, uh, that individuals were adopted into tribes. Mm-hmm. considered part of the tribe that we're not genetically part of the tribe true right. so and they yeah and they're very very tied to the culture in ways that maybe right. others are not yeah hmm because in the blood quantum once we talk about the tribal regulations each tribal has a different regulations mm-hmm. they said the blood quantum standard which is required by the membership and they differ between the tribes um for example, about 66% of the tribes recognized by the U.S. government require a minimum blood quantum of 25% for tribal enrollment. And then also federal government requires a blood quantum of 25% of a higher before individuals qualify for, uh, for be- federal benefits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I feel like that it brings up so many different feelings, emotions, conflict among the Native tribes. Um because there are some that say, well, I don't need to have my CDIB card, my certificate degree of Indian blood, or, or show you what my blood quantum is registered through the federal government, because I know I'm Indian and, and you can be looking at them clearly able to see that they are full blood Indian, but they never got to get registered through their ancestors. And so, and it's, it's kind of a hurtful topic for them, but then sometimes they're pretty tough about it. Like, I don't need that to prove who I am. So, and, and as it pertains to powwows, then you talk about being native versus playing native, expand on that a little bit. There are uh, hobbyists uh, in Europe who in a lot of cases have never met native Americans, have never been to a, a native American sponsored powwow that just are fascinated with the culture. So there are actually contest powwows held in Europe, really in parts of Europe that huh. are won by non-Native Americans that have never, <laughs> never. Wow, I had no idea. Many would say, do they, or ask, do they legitimately have the right to do this? Should they be doing this? And I'm not going to say somebody doesn't have a right to do something, but they're not, you know, engaging in the activities as they would be engaged in here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there are also individuals, and, and, and I don't want to bring up names, and I'm so sorry that we're running out of time, but the, this term wannabe Indian, uh, you may have sure. heard of that. There are a whole host of monikers like that. 
but they decide that they want to be Native American, so they're going to be Native American right. uh, without any background in it, without any cultural knowledge, really, and they're going to put on yeah. a powwow. Right? Yeah. So they call those pseudo powwows or pseudo cultural powwows. Hmm. And that would be somebody playing Indian. Uh, yes. You know, in, in our perspective, yeah. certainly Native Americans who sponsor traditional local powwows. They certainly have the right to do that, but even we would question individuals that don't have any ties to Native American, uh, Native American, have no real uh, knowledge and understanding of uh, the powwow and the powwow culture putting on events. Indeed, indeed, well said. You know, at the conclusion of the book, you listed some of the external factors that are initiating change in the Native American culture. So I wanted to just mention a few of what those typically are. Interracial marriage, loss of language, loss of religion, social media, mainstream media, pop culture, materialism, independence, living in urban areas, all things that you guys kind of mentioned here and there throughout the episode. But I thought it was it was kind of interesting to hear what what those changes are coming about, um, the root cause there. So and in the book, you state we believe that the contest powwow will serve as a cultural tether, grounding Native Americans to their cultural values and traditions as they continue to evolve as people. Well said again. Thank you so much for this extremely interesting work you've done and the research that has shed some light on conclusions or, or even misconceptions that some may not have considered. And you've definitely opened my eyes to several new things. I know you're both passionate about learning about and helping our Native communities. So with that, are there any Native causes or businesses you'd like to promote? For a large number of years, my wife and I contributed to the Native American Heritage Foundation. Uh, last year, we found a, a group that we donated to at Christmas time that hauls wood to grandparents <laughs> on the okay. Navajo Reservation. Oh, that's awesome. So I think it was called something to the effect of wood for grandparents because Aww. my father-in-law used to have to chop wood and bring in the wood. And as he got older, that was really, really difficult to do. So we thought that was a wonderful cause. Totally. We donated to last year as well. That's well, I've been consistently donating Native American foundations, but uh, the main reason was just, I, lo I, I love Native people. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's yeah. no other reason behind that. I love that. Hey, for whatever reason, it's every yeah. bit helps. That's great. That's great. And I'll be sure to post those uh, links to those on my native chalk talk, Facebook page. And again, go check out the book. You guys, it's fantastic. The native American contest powwow cultural tethering theory. Again, I'll post some information for y'all as we close. What words of wisdom would you like to share with our listeners, Stephen? The more uh, that any individual learns about another, the closer they can become the more tolerant they can be with one another, the more appreciative that they can be of one another. And mm -hmm. again, as we looked at Native Americans, Native Americans are foreign to most Americans, Christians and uh, Muslims, blacks and whites. It doesn't matter. If you, if you don't sit down with people and talk, the barriers are never going to be broken. And I just think that that's a general, generally a, a good guideline. That whoever you meet, of whatever color, whatever ethnicity, whatever religion, is to talk to them, talk with them with an open and accepting mind. Doesn't mean you have to change who you are, but a whole lot of good can come from that. Um, in addition Thank to what you. Steve said, I would say, I think hopefully this project became a good bridge to understand the Native American culture. 
because once you're starting this this kind of uh, leading media understand the dialogue starting with the understanding uh, uh, between the respecting and love and tolerance and mutual respect i think this project is going to be starting that bridge so we can uh, continue some other projects like we mentioned to you about the power art in the contest power and then the we would like to apply our cultural tethering theory, some of the specific tribes. We're going to start with the Navajo Nation. Uh, another uh, professor from Utah State is going to join the, this uh, research as well. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Rachel. Really Thank big. you so much. And, and I would say that that bridge you're talking about, I think you've accomplished that for sure. And I, I'm excited for people to give us feedback on what they think about the book. Thank you again for those good words of wisdom. And listeners, don't forget to check out this fascinating book by Steve and Seba, The Native American Contest Powwow, Cultural Tethering Theory. I'll be sure to post the link to the book on my Native Chalk Talk Facebook page. And if you'd like to come out and enjoy the Chalk Talk Powwow, it's coming up, mark your calendars because it'll be on December 4th and 5th, 2021 in Durant, Oklahoma. Gentlemen, I appreciate you both. Yakoki. We appreciate you too. Have a good day. Thanks, everybody. The Choctaw Nation has always provided a foundation upon which a future can be built. From our home in Southeast Oklahoma to a bingo hall that grew to be one of the largest casinos in the world. Today's summer school programs lay the groundwork for a love of learning. Small business programs support local economies. And with over 10,000 jobs created, Choctaw offers financial stability to tribal members and our neighbors. Together we build success, because together we're more. Thanks for listening to Native Chalk Talk. Be sure to join our community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Simply search for Native Chalk Talk. That's Native, C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. And check us out at nativechalktalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yakoki. Thank you, my friends.